My name is Pastor Travis. I'm the teaching guy here. And we are continuing in our series entitled Upside Down Kingdom. What it means to be a citizen in God's kingdom. And uh, one of the things that we're talking about today and we're entering into, it's a four-sermon series suite is what we call this, where there's different sections. And you saw that this is about upside-down affections, where we're getting into the, what is prayer. And if we are citizens of God's heavenly kingdom, how are we to pray? And if you do want to follow along and maybe you don't have a Bible, you'll notice in these guys just walking back and forth, stick your hand up so they can uh, get one to you because we'd love to have you follow along with us as we do walk through this very important passage. Today we are going to talk about prayer. And I'm reminded of the song from the 1980s by Bon Jovi called Living on a Prayer. You might remember that song. And uh, the song really isn't anything about prayer. It's about this young love and how they have nothing and they're, they're just basically living on a prayer to survive. And it's the idea, it's an afterthought that love is the, the first thing and prayer means it's just kind of a, a wish, basically. And I thought about that and I'm like, what a poor understanding of prayer. Because really, we are truly to be living by prayer. As people of God, as citizens of this heavenly kingdom, God desires that we do pray. And we talk a lot about prayer. Um, we, we share things on Facebook and people say, I'm praying for you. And a lot of times they're just mouthing it. And I don't think we really truly understand the power of prayer and what it means to God. For many of us, prayer is a little bit, as Tony Evans says, like uh, the national anthem at a football game. Um, we go through the motions, we are quiet for a little bit, but really it's just a courtesy because it relates to nothing going on in the field. And for many of us, that's how prayer is. It's, it's something that's not connected to everyday life. It's something that's either too high and holy and removed from that we just don't think we can do or we don't know how or it's scary or, or perhaps we don't like being alone because when we are, our thoughts uh, just start coming in and accusing us and we're dealing with all of these other things that come in and we don't like that. Or maybe it's we don't know what to say or, or we're afraid of approaching God. Or Many of us are just afraid of God, period. It's like the fisherman who had strayed away from God and hadn't sought God in a long time, and he was caught on a boat and, uh, with his comrades, and a storm came in and, and was rustling horribly bad, and, and they knew that he had some type of faith, and they said, would you pray? And this fisherman said, okay. He goes, Lord, I'm sorry I haven't prayed to you for 15 years, and if you answer right now, I won't seek you for another 15 years. I'll just leave you alone. I mean, many of us are a little bit like that, you know. We don't want to see God. We're a little afraid of, of what that means and um, what could happen there. But see, God delights in us seeking Him. I mean, God takes prayer very, very seriously. He has made Himself available to us. And that's what we're going to look at today. What does that look like? What does that mean for us? How we are to live as citizens of this kingdom. We don't have to be theologians to pray. It doesn't have to be long, long prayers. I mean, matter of fact, Jesus reserves his, sometimes his harshest words for those who are a little holier than thou. He wants a real relationship with real people, no matter how broken they are. I mean, some of the best prayers in the Bible are real short ones, where it says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, save me. I mean, these are, these are important lightning bolt prayers that just strike to the heart of who we are. And Jesus wants us to understand what prayer is to remove any of the fog surrounding it so that we can get alone and do business with him because he longs to communicate with us, his people, his creation. That's what we are going to look at today. 
But before we go any further, let's ask for His Spirit to come and speak to us today. Father, we enter into Your presence knowing that You are holy and that You've given prayer to speak to us, to share with us, to hear with us. Lord, we we long to connect with You, to experience You, to know You in all of Your fullness and in all of Your glory. So Lord, please, speak to us today. Help us to truly understand who You are. Remove the fog of unbelief by the power of Your Word being preached in Your Spirit in our midst. And use us for the glory and honor of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, as I was thinking about this passage this past week, and before we really jump into our text, um, I had to go pick up a couch this past week that we had ordered for us some time ago. And I I was trying to get it done before small group, and I didn't have a vehicle big enough. So I rented one of those uh, U-Haul trucks from uh, Home Depot. And I, I only had a short window to get this, tru- to get this couch. And I, I knew it was in Geneva where this warehouse was. And uh, I knew that I had to get back in time for my small group, which was at 6.30. So I, I, find the, I go to Home Depot in uh, Aurora. They don't have any trucks, but they said there's one in Geneva. And I figured the couch is in Geneva. Why not do that? So I drive to Geneva. I'm, I'm going really fast. I walk in there. I said, I need a truck. They said, we got a truck. I said, okay, I want to get it. They said, all right, you, you can only get it for uh, 75 minutes. I'm like, that shouldn't be a problem. I can do that and get back. Um, I just got to find the place. I don't know how far away it is. And I, I check out, I pull out my phone, and I do, do GPS. And I find out that it's on the other side of Geneva. So I, I get in the truck. I drive to the other side of Geneva, and I come into this place where nothing is labeled the way that it's supposed to be labeled. And I'm driving around, and I, I can't find this place. And I'm trying to text people, and where is it? Is the address correct? And I don't have a number for them. The number I did have was actually disconnected because this place was going out of business. And I, I finally find it. It's back. It's hidden. And it doesn't have any, all the windows are, are covered over. And it says, honk your horn. So I'm honking my horn, honking my horn. And I'm getting angry because I'm running late. And, they, and also, they also told me at Home Depot that if I go over so many miles, i got to pay extra gas. So I'm under a time crunch, and wouldn't you know it, i got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> this is what always happens to me at these moments in time. And I'm stressed, and, I'm, and I have a thing that I've got going on in Aurora that I realize that I'm not going to make it back to, and I'm trying to get some help for someone else. And I notice the dreaded message appear on my phone, 20% battery left. You ever had that moment in time? And, and, and then I, I'm still trying to text people, and I'm trying to call people. I'm saying, where are these people? They're supposed to be open. It says that they're open. There's a light on in there. Um, what is going on? And I'm, I'm trying to orchestrate stuff. And then I, I'm, I'm texting these people, and I'm worried the time is ticking down. And, and I'm like, I don't want to spend any more money. And so I, I look at my phone again, and it says 10% phone. And now I'm getting really mad because i got to really go to the bathroom. And, and it always happens at that moment in time. And then I'm, I'm thinking I'm in the wrong place. And then this other couple shows up, and they said, we're here to pick up our furniture. And I said, there's no one. They said, can you help us? I'm like, no, because I don't work here. And, and so we, we, we were waiting, and, and I, I noticed my phone. It says, about to shut down. And I get this one text. said, just contacted owner, he. And then I read it, and my phone goes, Ooh. I'm not happy at this moment in time. I'm thinking, oh, this place is closed. i got to get back. i got to get the miles in. And I said, i, I got to get this done. So I decide to, I, I can't call anybody because my phone is dead. 
You ever felt like my phone is dead? I don't know who to contact. I don't know if anybody's doing anything that I needed them to get done. I have no idea what that text said. So I, I get in the truck. I drive back to Home Depot, go to the bathroom, get my charger, because uh, I, I didn't have my charger with me, plugged it in, and it says, and I'm sitting there going, I'm going to turn the truck in, and it says, no, the owner is going to be there in 20 minutes. Now, I just had driven on the other side of town. So now I've got to drive all the way back to get there in time before it closes. So I, 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 I drive all the way back over there, and I, I manage to get it, get back into Aurora, and I'm just a little bit late for my small group. Now, what's the point of the story? The point of the story is this. I felt really useless and hopeless when my cell phone went out because I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't get my bearings. I couldn't get my directions. I couldn't get my connection and time and all that. And I don't know about you, but if I walk out of the house and I don't have my cell phone, I mean, it's become so indispensable that I feel like something's wrong. I mean, I can't believe, it's so funny when you watch the movies back in the day, and you see them, you know, they're in a car chase, and they pull over to the side of the road to make a phone call at a public payphone. My kids are like, what is that? What? That, that's called a telephone. A phone? Really? How did they carry it in their pocket? They, they didn't. Okay. It's like that. But the point is, is that cell phones have become so indispensable to us because they give us directions. They, they help us to connect. They help us to know what's going on. Uh, shows us where we are, where we're going. And you know, that's how prayer should be in our lives. That we should feel naked without it. That we should always need to be able to connect, know where we are. Because see, that's what prayer is. It's God's GPS. Helps to give us directions, to show us where to go, to connect, to know what's going on. And we should feel naked walk, without walking out of the house, without seeking God's face. See, God has given us prayer because his heartbeat is to connect to us. And what I want us to look at, and this is the first point I want you to write down, is if we're to truly understand that we're not only to survive, but thrive in our spiritual walk with God, then it requires engaging God's heart. Now, I want us to really look at this text, engaging God's heart. Jesus is saying, and he's laying out these, this uh, introduction. Remember, we're in this Sermon on the Mount where he's talking to his followers, and he's, he's giving this kind of treatise on prayer. He says, and when you pray, he's saying there that my heart is for you to seek God, to pray. I want you to pray, and I'm expecting you to pray. That's the first thing. If we're to really engage God's heart, we have to understand that prayer is expected of us. It's not in addition to our spiritual life. It is to be intimately connected. Now, I know that some of us today, the idea of praying and, and getting on our knees is such a foreign fact. But you don't have to do it that way. There's a lot of different ways to pray. I mean, Nehemiah is getting ready to walk into the presence of the king, and he throws up a prayer real quick. I mean, there's some people that do get down on their knees, and there's some people that pray right in the middle of everyday life. That's why the scripture says pray without ceasing. The understanding is there that we have an attitude of prayer and dependence upon God. And if we're to experience all that God has for us, then it requires us having that connection, engaging God's heart. And we have to understand that prayer is expected of us. He expects us to pray. Notice there's three times within this passage, and when you pray, and when you pray, and when you pray, God expects us to connect with Him. So we see that prayer is expected, but it is also essential. Prayer is completely essential. We can't survive without prayer. We need it. Just like a seed can't come to life until that light and heat comes on it. We don't come alive until we are in the very presence of Almighty God. 
And that's when we start to mushroom and open up. But it is essential in our spiritual walk. It is the mortar that holds the brick building together. John Piper, great pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota, said this of prayer. I love this quote. Prayer is the walkie-talkie on the battlefield of the world. It calls on God for courage. It calls in for troop deployment and target location. It calls in for protection and air cover. It calls in for firepower to blast open a way for the word. It calls in for the miracle of healing for the wounded soldiers. He goes on. It calls in supplies for the forces. And it calls in the needed reinforcements. This is the place of prayer on the battlefield of the world. It is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of the saints. And one of the reasons that it malfunctions in the hands of so many Christian soldiers is that they have gone AWOL. Because we don't pray. We don't pray. We don't stop. We don't seek God's face. But prayer is essential if we are to live the life that God desires for us. And God, here's the, the amazing thing. God listens. God listens. How many of us would like to have someone to listen to us? I mean, people pay for this, by the way. I have a friend of mine who is a professional Christian, I mean, professional Christian counselor. People pay him hundreds of dollars an hour just to listen. Now God is willing to listen. God is willing to listen to Roy, to Jack, to Lisa, to Darlette, to Tom, to Carlene, to Naresh, to Jim. God is willing to listen to us. So prayer is expected, it's essential, but it's also, you know, it's effective. Prayer is effective. God listens to prayer. I love probably one of the most effective prayers in the Old Testament is Elijah. And in James chapter 5, verse 16 through 18, we read this. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That God listens to those. When we, we live our life for him, he listens to us. Now, it doesn't mean that he answers the requests that we selfishly and sinfully want. It means that he gives us what we need and hope for in the true depths of what we want, which is God himself. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years, on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Prayer is effective. Now, you might say to yourself, oh, that's in the Bible. That's a old time, long time ago. What about today? And I've shared a story in here before, but I, I, it bears mentioning again because it's such a powerful story. It's the story of Jim Cimbala who is a pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York. And he, he talks about praying for his daughter, Chrissy, who is 18. And she decides to, as many teenagers often do, uh, he, she turns her back on her faith and wants to go and live for herself in sin and leaving the house. And she doesn't want to have anything to do with the Christian faith any longer. And he is so broken, he begins to seek counsel from another pastor. And another pastor says, let her go. She's going to do what she wants to do. She's 18 years old. What can you do? And he says that something that developed within him, so this intensity and growing faith as never before that led him to pray for her. And he says, whatever bad news I would receive about Chrissy, I kept interceding and actually began praising God for what I know he would do soon. I made no attempts to see her. Carol, his wife, and I endured the Christmas season with real sadness. I was pathetic, sitting around trying to open presents with 
our other two children without Chrissy. February came. One cold Tuesday night during the prayer meeting, I talked from Acts chapter 4 about the church boldly calling on the name of God in the face of persecution. We entered into a time of prayer, everyone reaching out to the Lord simultaneously. An usher handed me a note. A young woman, whom I felt to be very spiritually sensitive, had written this. Pastor, Pastor Simbola, I feel very impressed right now that we should stop the meeting and I'll pray for your daughter. I hesitated. Was it right to change the whole flow of the service and focus on my personal need? Yet something in the note seemed to ring true. In a few minutes, I picked up a microphone and told the congregation what had just happened. The truth of the matter, I said, although I haven't talked much about it, is that my daughter is very far from God these days. She thinks up is down and down is up, dark is light and light is dark. But I know God can break through to her. He goes on. So I'm going to ask Pastor Bokstaff, who's on the staff, to lead us in praying for Chrissy. Let us all join hands across the sanctuary. He said, as my associate began to pray, to lead the people, I stood behind him with my hand on his back. My tear ducts had run dry. But I prayed as best I knew. To describe what happened in the next minutes, I can only employ a metaphor. The church turned into a labor delivery room. The sounds of women giving birth are not pleasant, but the results are wonderful. Paul knew this when he said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, verse I just love, my dear children, for whom I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There arose a groaning, a sense of desperate determination, as if to say, Satan, you will not have this girl. Take your hands off her. She's coming back. I was overwhelmed. The force of that vast throne calling on God almost literally knocked me over. He said, when I got home that night, Carol was waiting up for me. We sat at the kitchen table drinking coffee, and I said, it's over. She said, what's over? He said, it's over with Chrissy. You should have seen what happened tonight. You'd have to have been in that prayer meeting. I tell you, if there is a God in heaven, this whole nightmare is finally over. And I described what had taken place. 32 hours later, I was getting ready in the morning. And I was shaving. I had foam all over my face. When Carol suddenly burst into the bathroom door, her eyes wide. She said, go downstairs. She blurted out, Chrissy's here. Chrissy's here? She's here. Yes, go down. But Carol, I, just go down. She urged, she wants you to talk to you. said, I wiped off the shaving foam and headed down the stairs, my heart pounding. As I came around the corner, I saw my daughter on the kitchen floor, rocking on her hands and knees, sobbing. Cautiously, I spoke her name, Chrissy. She grabbed my pant leg and began pouring out her anguish. Daddy, Daddy, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against myself. I've sinned against you and Mommy. Please forgive me. He goes, my vision was as clouded. My tears is hers. I pulled her up from the floor and held her close as we cried together. Suddenly she drew back. Daddy, she said with a start, who is praying for me? Who is praying for me? The voice was like that of a cross-examining attorney. What do you mean, Chrissy? On Tuesday night, Daddy, who was praying for me? I didn't say anything, so she continued. In the middle of the night, God woke me and showed me I was heading toward this abyss. There was no bottom to it. It scared me to death. 
I was so frightened. I realized how hard I've been, how wrong, how rebellious. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept me from sliding any farther. And as he said, I still love you. Daddy, tell me the truth. Who is praying for me on Tuesday night? I looked into her bloodshot eyes, and once again, I recognized the daughter that we raised. Chrissy's return to the Lord became evident immediately. By the fall, God had opened up a miraculous door for her to enroll at Bible College, where she not only undertook her studies, but soon began directing music groups in a large choir, just like her mother. Today, she's a pastor's wife in Chicago with three wonderful children. God answers prayer. God takes very seriously prayer. Prayer is powerful. It is transformative. And it's not something we fake or pretend to do. In fact, Jesus condemns pretenders. Let's look at our text. Notice Jesus' words. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And in Greek, it has two different meanings. There's a figurative meaning. It means two-faced or the idea of an actor playing a part. He's saying, don't go to God trying to pretend and play a part. That's not what God wants. God wants you as you are, broken, coming before him. He wants to speak to you. Now, we can't, if we're not going to be like these hypocrites, we have to guard against hypocrisy. If we're, to, not only, if we're to survive, but not just survive, but thrive, we have to guard against hypocrisy. We have to be honest before God. Stop trying to be more spiritual than you really are. Just be honest before God. We have so many people that come in and they think they have to be so spiritual without being broken, and they're pretending. That's not who they really are. That's something that they're, they're taught to perform a part. Jesus is saying, no, come as you are, and then I will transform you and make you into the person that I want you to be. We have to guard against this hypocrisy. Now, how do we do this? i got four different ways. The first is this. It means checking our motivation. Checking our motivation. Let's look back at our text. Why do these individuals, why does Jesus call them hypocrites? He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. At these certain times of prayer, Jews had, just like Muslims do today. And they would stop and they would pray, usually at 9, noon, 3. Okay? And they would stop and they would pray wherever they are. I saw, if you've ever been in around uh, anyone who is an Orthodox Jew or uh, a Muslim, they ha- Muslims even have these prayer mats. They will stop wherever they are, no matter what they're doing, to pray right where they're at. When I was in Egypt, um, I was on uh, a boat on the Nile, and there were many different Muslims there. And you could hear the Muzarin. They have this called worship. And these guys would just roll out their mats and get down on their knees right then and there. Right in the middle of the boat. Right in the middle of where they were. Didn't matter where they were at. They would pray right there. It could be a whole crowd going on around them. They would just pray right there. And the idea here is, is these guys aren't doing it to connect with God. They're doing it to have people pat them on the back. Now, when you're seeking God, what's your motivation? Are you doing it to be seen by others? Are you going to manipulate God? Some people do that. They go to manipulate God, trying to make deals with God, trying to trick God. God sees through that. We have to check our motivation. Why are we doing it? They were doing it to be seen by other people. They wanted other people to, to, to come along and give them praise. God says that he is, wants, we have to be checking our motivation. Because we can try to manipulate God all the time. I see this with couples, by the way. Couples, I've seen it with children. I mean, when people feign an interest in God in order to please somebody else. 
I see that with couples that are dating often, where one will have faith and the other one doesn't. The other one will pretend to go along with the flow and go through the motions just to please that person because they want to be with that person, but they could care less about the faith. See, that's, that's a manipulation that's going on there. That's, God says we have to check that. We have to check make sure that we're not trying to manipulate anybody else. We're not trying to manipulate God. We're not trying to get him to do exa- what we want. We want God himself. So we have to make sure that we are checking our motivation. Secondly, we have to be releasing our reputation. Releasing our reputation. See, they were doing it to be seen by others. They wanted to show how spiritual they were. Now, it's, it's no... It's, it's no mistake that God reserves his sometimes fiercest attacks, Jesus especially, on those who were pretending to be very, very spiritual when, they, when their heart was so far from God. Because they wanted to have the esteem of men, the praise of men. It's just, they wanted to, have, to be looked at well in, the, in other people's eyes. He says, no, 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 no. You have, to be on, you have to release your reputation. You're not trying to live before others. You're trying to live before an audience of one. Why are you doing what you're doing? Are you doing it so other people will come alongside you and say how great you are? Because of your name and how spiritual and how holy you are? That's, what, that's not what it's about. We have to be releasing our reputation. Thirdly, we must make sure that we are guarding against and avoiding mindless repetition. You have to put that mindless in there. I didn't get into the print. Avoiding mindless repetition. Look, notice what Jesus says in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And then he, when he says these empty phrases, it literally means babbling. They're babbling. They're just saying things over and over and over and over and over again. You see this uh, in, in different, different religions. You see it in Hinduism. You can see it in Islam. You can even see it in Catholicism and in, sometimes in Protestantism. When sometimes people are praying with rosaries, they actually have a, a prayer bead in Hinduism and in Islam. And what they do is they continue to say the same prayer over and over and over and over and over again. They're just babbling. And that's not what God wants. He wants to have a conversation. Imagine if you are married, you have a conversation with your spouse, and you just keep saying over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Your spouse is going to be like, shut up, shut up, shut up. I want to have a conversation with you. I want to talk with you. See, that's what God wants to do, have a conversation. It's not this, this vain repetition. And not only that, it's not these just flowery expressions that these really great words and saying all these things, Uh, So you'll have other people go, wow, what a great prayer they are. Some people do that. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I want your heart. I don't want you to be thinking about what everybody else thinks. I want you to think about what I think. So we have to avoid this mindless repetition. Fourthly, we must make sure that we are seeking God's validation. Seeking God's validation. In other words, if you're focused on God, everything else falls into place. Other people don't look so big. When you're focusing on dealing with God and and communicating with him, the other people don't matter. I think of David when he was dancing before the ark as it's making its way back into Jerusalem. And he is just worshiping God. He's just concerned about God to the point where he's almost humiliating himself. And his wife, Michael, sees him and she despises him in her heart. And she says, wow, you really made a show in front of everybody today. And he's like, wasn't doing it for you. You're not my focus. God is. God is. And God chose me over your father because he was concerned with stuff like this. He wasn't concerned about having that 
being right with Almighty God. So we must make sure that we are seeking God's validation, that we're living life and praying to the audience of one. God and God alone. He wants to communicate with us, to speak to us, to get alone with us. Now, how do we do this? We must be embracing the God who hears. Embracing the God who hears. You know, God has many different names in Scripture, and one of them means the God or the one who hears. He hears our pains, he hears our problems, he hears our challenges, and he hears our cries. He hears our sins, our suffering, our struggles. He sees all, and he listens to all that's in our heart. Why do we pray? And how do we embrace the God who hears? I mean, we pray because, first of all, it reveals our deep need for God. Deep need for God. Oswald Chambers, a great devotional writer from Scotland, uh, last century said this, whenever the insistence is on the point that God answers prayer, we are off the track. The meaning of prayer is that we get a hold of God, not of the answer. So we need to change our understanding of prayer. It's not just going with a laundry list of things. It's to get to know and have God himself. See, I think many of us go with our, our, our needs, and when we go in with our grocery list and God doesn't answer, we get really frustrated. It's because we haven't understood the point of prayer. We were looking at the, the product, not the person. We have to make sure that we are stripping that away and saying, I want God himself. Because God himself is the gospel. He is offering up himself to us. The crucified Savior who gave himself as our substitute. Who took our sins upon himself. He offers himself to us. We pray because this does reveal our deep need for God. See, the problem is, is that many of us look at, look at God as a valet at a hotel. We're at the airport. We give him all of our baggage, give him a tip, and then that's it. Here, God, take it all. Thanks, by the way. We don't realize that he is the creator of the universe, the king of heaven, the one who has fashioned us, the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand. We must approach him that way to realize how powerful and wonderful he is. See, prayer not only shows our deep need for God, but it shows our dependence on Him. Dependence on Him. Now, it's interesting. He goes on in chapter 6. If you look down, when he gets into the actual part of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. It's the understanding that we are sustained by God alone, that God, we look to you. We look to you. We are relying on you. Now, I'm, you know, we have a, a, a baby in our house, Josiah, and uh, I'm amazed. Josiah is completely dependent upon my wife just completely dependent for food, for nurture, for clothing. And, and, and we, in our culture, we esteem independence. But God is saying, I want you to be dependent on me like a child is to his mother for his milk. That's how dependent God wants us to be. Now, that, that really frustrates many of us because we like to be in control at all times. We like to be in control. I'll tell you something. If I could fly a plane, I would ask the pilot to let me fly because I trust myself more than I do them. I don't like even being in cars where I'm not the one driving. I've had to learn to relinquish that and say, honey, you can drive. And I'm constantly doing the brake thing. You know? 
And sometimes I do. Sometimes I feel like, you know, like we're teenagers. You know, and, and we're, we, like, you know, when a, like a teenage parent, when they let their teenager drive the car, or in driver's ed. You ever been in driver's ed? And now they have the brakes on the, right, on the passenger side, and when the kid's not doing it, you can see the, the instructor over there braking. See, many of us are like that with God. We're saying, God, here, take the wheel of my life. I don't like what you're doing now. We try to maintain some semblance of control. God's saying, no, I want you to give full control over to me. Show our dependence upon him. Now, prayer also reveals God's determination for relationship. God's determination for relationship. You know, God wants to commune with us. He desires to commune with us. His heartbeat is to commune with us. Do you ever wonder why God made us? We hosted a debate here um, a little over a week ago for the Ken Ham, Bill Nye, the science guy debate on creation evolution. It was interesting hearing the two debate, not just hearing the, how they looked at different things, but even how they phrased their language. But what was particularly fascinating to me is when they came to the question of why are we here, and I couldn't give an answer, but Ham could. We're here to bring glory to God. God has, has a purpose for why he has made us. He desires to know us. God didn't have to make you. God didn't have to make us at all. He chose to make us. Why? To commune with us that we might seek him. He created us that we might call on him. We see this in the book of Acts, chapter 17. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should do what? Seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Raising him from the dead. See, God desires for us to seek him, to call on him. To worship Him. To know Him. God is determined to have a relationship with us. And lastly, we pray because prayer reveals our delight. Or God's delight in being there for us. God's delight in being there for us. You know, God delights in being there for us. Last night, I got to go to a daddy-daughter dance. Daddy-daughter dance with my, my second grader, Mariah. And uh, she'd asked me, a few, several days before, Daddy, would you go to the daddy-daughter dance? And I, I, I said, sure, not realizing what I was saying. Um, and, I, and the day quickly approached, and she kept asking, like children do when they're seven years old, we're having the daddy-daughter dance. She walked around and told everybody that we were going to the daddy-daughter dance. She was incessantly telling everybody we're going to the daddy-daughter dance. At bed at night, we're going to the dad, daddy-daughter dance. In the morning, Daddy, we're going to the daddy-daughter dance, aren't we? Yes, honey. Yes, honey. And, and the more that she did it, the more I, I was so delighted to go. I was excited to go to be there for my daughter. 
because she kept reminding, and she was so excited about it. It was my delight to meet that need. You know, God delights in doing that for us, meeting our needs. He delights in being there for us, to show himself to be sovereign, to show himself to be our provider, to show himself to be our sustainer and our savior and the passion of our heart. God has a desire and a delight in being there for us. See, God places a high value in prayer, much higher than we do. You know, it's interesting. Moses doesn't teach us how to pray. The Old Testament, we're really not taught how to pray. Did you realize that? We're really not. Where we're taught to pray is by Jesus. There's, there's some parts of prayer within the Old Testament. I mean, we see Elijah. But the, probably the biggest place where we get an understanding of prayer and how much God values connecting with people is actually found in 1 Kings chapter 18. And when Solomon, King Solomon, who was the king of Israel, is dedicating the temple to God. And he starts describing what this place should be like. And I want to share with you, he, in Solomon's prayer in this dedication, he prays that this temple would be the place where God's name would dwell. He prays that it's where God's people could pray and receive judgments. But it was for prayer primarily. And Solomon prophetically prayed that it would be a place where people could pray for forgiveness of sins. If the nation of Israel lost in battle due to sin and were removed from the land because of it, God would restore them if they came to the temple and prayed. And this is throughout this passage. If drought came over the land because of sin, it was the temple they were to go to and pray, confessing and repenting of their sin, trusting in the promise that God would bring rain. If there was some type of famine or pestilence in the land, then individuals or the nation as a whole could come and pray for God's intercession intercession and and that he would act if a foreigner came to the temple praying in search of the one true god he would hear so that and this is the passage i want you to see so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people israel and that they may know that this house that i have built is called by your name so what what god is saying there is i've given this to you because i desire to connect with people and that's why jesus in the only time that he ever shows anger is when they they pollute the temple. And he says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. You guys have distorted it. You've lost the understanding that God desires to commune with you. And you've polluted it. You've lost the understanding of what it's about, that God longs to to be met with people from all nations, from all backgrounds, from all educational and socioeconomic, you know, everybody. He wants to connect with everyone. That's God's heartbeat. And that's why God takes it so seriously and he clears out the temple because he's made it a, they made it a den of robbers. They were, they were profiting from people coming from all over. They weren't understanding God's passion and God's heartbeat to connect with people. I mean, that's how high of an emphasis God placed on prayer. Now, we've talked and we see now that God has placed such a value on prayer. But what do we do? What do we do now? Well, I think it's up to each one of us if we're really truly to be the people that God desires we be. Then it requires making prayer a holy habit. Making prayer a holy habit. Now, I want us to go back and look at our text again. Notice. After he is condemning the hypocrites, he says in verse 6, But when you pray, 
go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, first of all, if we're to... We, we are to make prayer a holy habit in our lives, and it requires us conversing with the divine person. Father, Father, call on your Father. We are calling on a spirit being. We're not calling on Allah. We're not calling on Mary. We're not calling on any saint. The scripture says we are to only consult God and God Him alone, calling Him Father, no one else. We are to only pray to God our Father, conversing. And it's a conversation. And as some saints have said, the more that I progress and grow in the habit of prayer, that it's less talking but more listening. See, it is a conversation where we speak. Now, some people say, well, what do you hear? I hear God working in my heart and my thoughts, bringing things to the surface that I can get a heavenly perspective. That God begins transforming me as I am wrestling with him and speaking with him in prayer, and I long to be in his presence. If you don't long to be in his presence, the question is, is why? Chances are there is some sin that has crept in, some act of disobedience. You have let, you have let your heart grow cold and let it build up layers of ice. And you've become cold and indifferent to God because you've turned away from him. You've turned away from his word. You've turned away from the community and the people of God. And God says, turn back. I want to have a conversation with you. Now notice what else he says. He says, go and pray to your father who is in secret. But before that, he says, go and into your room and shut the door. So for us to have this prayer and make prayer a holy habit, it requires us meeting at a specific place. Meeting at a specific place. Now Andrew Murray, and there are many different names that have been great prayers throughout the history of the church, and Andrew Murray was one of them. He said this, the first thing the Lord teaches his disciples that must, is that we must have a secret place for prayer. Everyone must have some solitary spot where he can be alone with his God. He wants each one to choose for himself the fixed spot where he can daily meet him. The inner chamber, the solitary place, is Jesus' schoolroom. The spot may be anywhere. The spot may change from day to day if we have to change our abode, but that secret place there must be with the quiet time in which the pupil places himself in the master's presence. To be by him prepared to worship the Father there alone, there must surely, Jesus comes to teach us to pray. Jesus was a great prayer. Now, does that mean being on your knees for four hours? It might for some. For others, it might be that impromptu prayer, like Nehemiah prayed right before he went into the impromptu, and right before he went into the presence of the king. I know some people, they pray when they're walking. I know some people would pray on the train, on their commute, or being in the car because they were praying for all the sinners around them in traffic. I mean, Susanna Wesley, John Wesley's mother, uh, founder of Methodism, she had 20 children. She didn't have a lot of time to pray, much less do anything else. But what she would do is she would take her apron and she'd put it over her head, and the kids knew that was time to leave her alone. And I know different people pray for different things. I know, uh, I know people in their professions, and they, like teachers who play for their students. I know um, realtors who play for their clients. I know for dentists who pray for their patients. Who are you praying for? It's a conversation. 
I mean, do you have that place to get away alone with God and let him speak to you? I mean, it might be on the train. It might be in a shower, in the bathroom, in the bathtub, or it might be in your car. It might be in your basement. I mean, where do you go to meet with God? You say, I might be, I'm too busy to do that. I don't have enough time. Well, let me tell you something. You can never be too busy to pray. Never be too busy to pray. And I, we talked about this in our small group. And I, I'm sure many of you have seen this exercise where they take a jar, big jar, and they have big rocks and they have like sand and water. And they take the sand and they put it in the jar. And it fills it up. And then they put the water in it and then they try to put the rocks in it. The rocks won't fit. Right? So what they do is, is they take all that out and they start over again. They take the big rocks and they put them in first. And then they put the sand and then they put the water. And you know what? They all fit then. It's a great picture of when we, we do business with God, when we, we make God the priority, everything else falls into place. When we try to crowd God out, everything else goes haywire. You might want to know where, I mean, you might feel like you're spinning your wheels spiritually, and maybe it's because you need to get a, alone with God. You know, some people say, I feel God is far from me. I have one question for you. Who moved? It wasn't God that moved. You moved. We need to get alone, close our door, and interact with God. Now, as you pray, you're going to have some hard times. You might fall asleep. You might start thinking of the game. You might get distracted. You might think of that problem or pain at work. You could be thinking of that relationship. You could be, um, your mind could be assailed by doubt. No one is born into a great prayer. It takes time, and that means growing through consistent practice. Growing through consistent practice. That's the point. The idea is not you have to pray so many hours a day and get this many requests in. No, it's not about filling a quota. It's not about that at all. Just like when, I get with my, when I'm talking with my wife, I'm not going, I have to talk with this right now. I'm not doing that. I'm conversing with her. We're sharing. We're talking. The same is true with God. We need to be growing in that. And just like I'm growing in communication with my wife, I'm learning what not to say. There's a lot of things not to say. But there's a lot of things learning to say. To learning to get to know the real her. The same is true with God. We grow through consistent practice, working at it again and again and again. And if you feel like you failed in the past, don't give up. Keep persevering on we need to have those times to pray. And for some of us, that mean might be going deeper. Some might be just starting off, and others need to be those three-hour prayers. We need those. I'm amazed at some of the saints that I read, Martin Luther, John Wesley, George Whitfield, George Mueller. Um, I'm reading of these saints um, of God who were so on fire for God that they would pray for hours at a time, hours at a time. And it takes time to develop our prayer life. Now, if we're to ever persevere in prayer, this is my last point, then it requires believing in God's eternal promise. Believing in God's eternal promise. And I want us to look back at our text. And when you pray, do not heap up, verse 7, empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. See, why do we pray if God already knows our needs? It's because we're getting to know Him. And not only getting to know Him, but the understanding is, is that God will reward us. Notice time and time again in verse 5, 
truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. They will be rewarded for their prayer, but it's that public acknowledgement, and that's an, a temporal award, reward. God wants to give us an eternal reward. So when he says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's an understanding of reward there, that we trust in God, that we rest in Him, that we cast our faith on Him. See, true faith casts themselves on the person of God for Him to answer, for Him to engage, for Him to touch our hearts and our lives. It's believing in God's eternal promise that He will give us, that He will listen to us. And it's, He has made Himself available to us, that He will answer, that you're not ever going to get His voicemail. There's never a busy signal. God will answer, and he will give you a reward, and it might be in this life or it could be in the next. The question is, is where does your faith lie? I mean, we want to see results, tangible results, and God says, no, 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 I'm working in secret. You're not going to see everything going on. It's going to take faith to trust in me. Faith to trust in me. That's what it's about. It's about believing in God and what He has done for us. And see, the only reason that we can have any access to God is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. See, Jesus, when Jesus died, it says that the veil tore in temple, tore in the temple. And that was to it was symbolized that man couldn't have access to God. That there had to be an intermediary. Now we see Jesus is our intermediary, and the only way that we can have access to God is through his son who gave himself for each one of us to die on the cross for our sins. I think we don't understand what prayer really is, who God really is. We don't understand what it means to have that relationship with him, to place our faith in him, and to live in that dependence day by day in the delight of knowing that he gave himself for us and that we give ourselves by faith daily to him that he might continue to make his son known in us. And that's available to all who call upon him in repentance and faith. That if we call in the name of the Lord, we will be saved. That if we confess our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's a transforming life. That is a rock your world life. That is a new life. And a new relationship whereby we can commune with him in ways that are beyond our ability to understand. That is what God does for us. Let's pray.